Good morning. We're going to try that one more time. Good morning. It is great to see some of you we haven't seen in a little bit. You've been uh, quarantining out of an abundance of caution, or maybe you guys uh, have just been away, but it's nice to see some of you we haven't seen in a little bit, and I can tell you that I'm just thrilled because Sundays is the highlight of the week, isn't it? We get to come together for fellowship and the Word and see all of our church family. And so here we are this morning, and, and, and I'm really excited because we're in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 42, we have a wonderful outline of the early church. And dare I say, we should look at the model of the early church and then look at our own church and other churches, and, and really just the church in America, the church throughout the world. And we should look at what the early church was doing in the first century when it was at its most pure, at its most uh, uh, abundantly powerful. And we need to measure it against the activities as a church that we're involved in and as Christians in our fellowship with one another. And what I'd like to do this morning is have you turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we're going to look at the devotion that took place in the church, the devotion of the Christians. We're going to look at the dynamic of the church. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. And then we're going to see that God gave the direction of the church. So just going to look at a few verses, the rest of this chapter, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I've looked at this passage of Scripture many, many, many times over the years. And every time I do, I see something new and fresh. But one of the things I'm always brought back to is how important it is to just stick to the basics. That when you deviate from the basics of Christianity in the church, you oftentimes, almost always, get involved in things that are complete wastes of time. Activity traps, things that keep us busy but don't really do anything for our spirits. Or or worse, distract us from what's most important. So what I'd like to do in a minute after we pray, is open up God's word with you this morning and just look at these few verses and ask the Lord by the power of the Spirit to show us what should the church be like today? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this wonderful guidance, this blueprint of what the early church was so that we can follow that blueprint and be true to your Holy Spirit's direction. As we look into these things, Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding, and I I pray that you'd enable us and empower us to receive your word for us, for each and every one of us personally, as a church corporately, but even more so as the church in our nation and in our culture, that we might truly honor you as the body of Christ and bring glory to your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's... Let's start by looking just at verse 42. And verse 42 gives us the first of the three topics we're going to look at today. It's the devotion of the church. Devotion is a word that means what you're committed to. It means what's important, what's most important. Okay, the priorities of the church, the devotion of the church was outlined in this way. Speaking of the church, we read in verse 42 of chapter 2 in the book of Acts that they devoted themselves, notice, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, you know what I love about those four things? 
They are the essentials of the church. They are the devotion of the church. They are what the Christians of that first century did in response to God's goodness. Their response to God was devotion. Their response to God was devotion. Now that's the thing we have to remember. Devotion isn't something you do for God. It's your response to God. God is so good and as he works, we respond by devoting ourselves to the things that are most important. Now anyone who studies any discipline, whether it's music or athletics, knows the fundamentals are everything. You get away from the fundamentals and you get off course. I can remember learning guitar. My guitar teacher was always saying, okay, chords and scales. Or in the case of bass, it was arpeggios and scales. It was always those basics. And, you know, as a kid, I want to play Led Zeppelin. I don't want to play scales. And yet what I found out very quickly (laughs) is that all of those bands I grew up with that I loved, all of the parts were, guess what, arpeggios, scales, and chords. Because the basics are the the dictionary, the fundamentals of what it is you really want to do. But we oftentimes don't want to learn the fundamentals. We want something more exciting. We want something more more elaborate. And yet the fundamentals, the basics are what help us to do all of the things that we think we need to be doing. The truth is these are the fundamentals of the church, the devotion of the church. What was the first? They studied God's word together. Oh, imagine that. You know, for many decades in the church, in this culture, we started to drift away from things like just studying God's Word. And I think it partially happened because of the number of very talented communicators we were blessed with. Pastors who you could listen to talk all day about almost nothing, but you could listen to them because they were just gifted communicators and what happened is it became very interesting and so we got these topics that were fascinating, but At the end of the day, more and more, we stepped away from the teaching, the Word of God, the verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, study of God's Word. Now listen, I can get up here and entertain you. I, I, you know, I I could do that. And, 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 And maybe you go home feeling good. Oh, that was great. All that joke that Pastor Tim mentioned was so funny. But at the end of the day, the fundamentals of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word is the most important thing that I can do as a pastor of this church, that any of us can do as pastors and ministers and leaders in this congregation. So they studied, as it says here, the apostles' teaching. Now, at the time, they didn't have New Testaments. So the apostles would teach God's word. But let's stop a minute and realize that the apostles' teaching, which is what they devoted themselves to, was from the Old Testament. Now, I can tell you confidently that many churches that continued to teach the New Testament, even when it became passé, oftentimes neglected the Old Testament. Oh, it's too difficult, or you'd study it on a Wednesday, but not necessarily on a Sunday. And so many people were very familiar with the Gospels, and maybe some of the epistles, but when you spoke to someone about the book of Habakkuk, or Nahum, or Obadiah, they didn't have any idea what you were talking about. So as far as biblical literacy goes, we had a situation where people knew their Bibles, then people got into topics, and if they were going to be in the Bible, it was almost always the Gospel of John or Matthew or Romans. But never those other books, and there's so much value to them, but I want to remind you, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
and none of the New Testament books were written just yet. So what did they study? Well, they studied the Old Testament. In fact, I'll remind you, we just studied this, Peter's message on Pentecost was given from the Old Testament. He quoted from the the book of Joel and the Psalms. And all of the New Testament writers, as you read them, they taught from the scriptures the Old Testament. I remember many, many years ago, a missionary came, and it was probably the first missionary I ever met. He was a very young Christian. And he opened up his Bible, and he split it right where, you know, Malachi ends and Matthew begins. And he did that, and he held it up, and he said, you know, if you look at it, the Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. And he goes, I don't know, but maybe we should be reading it two-thirds of the time. And ever since that moment, I just dedicated myself to studying both Old and New Testaments. Because I realized there's such value in the study of the Old Testament scriptures. So this is what the apostles did. Now, their teaching is in the New Testament, and we're so grateful to have that. But their teaching is from the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, but it's from the Old Testament. Peter's message on Pentecost is recorded in the New Testament, but it reflects back on the Old Testament. So I'm not suggesting we abandon the New Testament or just study the Old Testament. We study the Bible. There are 66 books, right? So that's one of the reasons I think it's very important to be in all of God's Word. And the Apostles' Doctrine was not just one testament. In fact, it was recorded in the New, reflecting back and teaching and expounding upon the Old. All of the New Testament writers, they taught the New Testament. So we are so fortunate to have both. Amen? And so we dedicate ourselves, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And so when it says the apostles' teaching, it's not something different than the Bible. It's the Bible. Okay? So hopefully you see that. It's the Bible as taught by the New Testament writers from the Old Testament. And, of course, the Old Testament writers as well. Now... They also did something else, and and of course I could talk all day about how important the study of God's Word is, because that's how God speaks to our hearts. But you know this. Let's move on to the next fundamental. It's fellowship. It's fellowship. Notice it goes on to say it this way, not just that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, notice, and to the fellowship. Now there's a definite article there, not a fellowship, not fellowship, the fellowship. The fellowship tells us how to interpret that word. First of all, the word in Greek you're probably familiar with, it's koinonia. I don't usually use Greek words, but you're so familiar, I'm sure, with that word that it's worth mentioning. Koinonia. They minister to one another in koinonia or in the koinonia, and it means communion, it means oneness, it means community, and it really reflects on intimacy. Now, why is that important? Well, certainly we want to come together in a church where we study God's Word, or Old and New Testament. But can you imagine if you just walked in the door, had wonderful time of Bible study, and then we say, go in peace, and then you all race out that back door, get in your cars, get on the, the highway out here, and just race home. Now, now why, would that, why would that not be a good thing? Because they not only devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Let me explain. We don't come together to fellowship. We don't come together to fellowship. We are 
the fellowship. I have been keenly aware of this over the last year, but especially over the last few weeks, because as I've mentioned sometimes in our prayers and in our openings, that you know, there's a number of people that, that have had to stay away. We're appreciative that they're considered enough. And by the way, I don't need to say this, right? I mean, it's in the bulletin. If you're sick, we ask you to stay home. It doesn't necessarily have to be COVID. Just if you're not feeling well, you stay home. I'd like to keep that going. Long after we forget COVID and coronavirus and all the craziness, I'd like to, that's one tradition I'd like to adopt. Is that okay? You're not feeling well, you stay home because while we share a lot in fellowship, that's not something we want to share. There's some things you can keep to yourself. So we have a number of families and people who, you know, they're fine. They're doing okay. Some of them have had to deal with the virus. Some of them not. But all of them are considered enough to say, you know what, that's not something I want to share. But what I'm aware of is if I don't see Jim because Jim and Estella are traveling or I don't see family and friends, I feel that. I feel that. It, 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 something's not right when I don't see you guys. And you know something? That shows me that we don't just come together to fellowship. We are the fellowship. And they were devoted to the fellowship. Now that plays out in a number of ways. Helping one another, loving one another, being there for one another, listening to one another, caring for one another, texting someone. Oh, I was thinking about, I can't tell you how many times in the last two weeks I've thought about someone in the morning while I'm having breakfast, and I said, let me, let me send them a little note. And some of you may have received those notes. I'm just thinking about you. I don't do that so you'll like me. If you've listened to me preach, you know I don't do things so people will like me. I do that because I care. Because you guys are important to me, and I'm important to you. We're devoted to one another. And this is one of the reasons I don't necessarily like really large churches, because, I mean, how many people can you really be devoted to? I mean, seriously, I, I don't know. Maybe some pastors are better than, than me, but I, I love a couple hundred people. I can know their names, at least their first names. I can ask them how they're doing, remember you know, who they are. But the thought of going for me, this is just me. I'm not being critical of anyone else. The thought of going to church where I hardly know most of the people is, is just awful to me. I, that's just not for me. I suppose that's great for some people. And God has those churches. This is not that church. But the idea of being able to be devoted to one another in this way, that we know what's going on in each other's lives, is really important. It's essential. It's a fundamental. And people have shared with me over the years that one of the reasons they like Calvary Chapel, this particular Calvary Chapel, is not only we're in God's Word, but we have a great fellowship. But that's not me. That's all of us. That's you. That's how you approach fellowship with one another. I love it. Listen, one of the things we did, and by the way, no one was smart enough to figure this out. This just happened. Early on, we really liked each other so much that during the time of greeting, I just kind of said, everybody's enjoying each other's fellowship. Let's Let's just let, let it go a little bit. So five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes. We let you guys connect. I remember one of the things that would happen to certain churches. I'd go in and they'd be like, oh, take a minute to say hello to the person you're sitting next to. And you turn around and you go, hi, my name's, okay, open up your Bibles. And it used to drive me crazy. And I didn't figure this out. We just kind of went with it and it felt right. And people started to connect during the greeting time. But you know what I found? I mean, this is just an observation. That the people you connected with for five minutes, you then connected with after service, maybe in the fellowship time, maybe outside in the parking lot, maybe you went out to lunch together. Maybe you had someone over your home. 
It was amazing, and it all stemmed from this idea that we value connection. You don't have to invent it. You just allow for it. And we've become devoted to one another. And this last year has been hard on us, hasn't it? Because if there's one thing that definitely was impacted over this last year, it was that fellowship, the devotion to the fellowship. We were forced on screens. Anybody tired of that yet? I was tired of that about five minutes after we started. Screens and we, you know, and listen, it, it, we did our best. We got through it, right? But one of the most exciting moments was when Pastor Russ said, hey, you think we can do an outside service? And again, I don't think anybody figured it out. The Spirit just led us. I certainly just said, oh, let's try it. So we went out, and I'll tell you, people have been asking me, we're going to go outside again. And unfortunately, because the other churches have services, it would be very difficult. Uh, At the time, they didn't. It would be very difficult to be outside. But I think we might be able to squeak in a few, right? Maybe we'll, we'll figure out a way to do a couple of outdoor services as the weather gets nice. People came together, and the look on people's faces, just seeing one another outside where, you know, I mean, let's face it, we've been lied to over and over again as to what's safe and what's not safe. But one thing everybody felt comfortable with was being outside. And God was so good. In 22 weeks, Lorianne told me this, in 22 weeks, I think there were two Sundays we couldn't be outside because it was a day like today. How great was that? It got to the point where I was like, you know, I love the word. Don't get me wrong. I love the word. But even if we just got together to be devoted to the fellowship, it would be awesome. And we were doing both. And, you know, I'm just, and again, I'm not like bragging on us, but I'm just saying, you know what? I appreciate the fellowship. And I appreciate your devotion to one another. And we're talking about this today for a reason. We don't come together to fellowship. We are the fellowship. And when we say devoted to the fellowship, that means we're devoted to one another. We actually invest in one another's lives, in one another's children in your families, when you need help moving, the younger guys, not me, but the younger guys will show up. I used, I did my time back in my 20s. Now I, you know, in my 50s, those days are over. I'll show up. I might put things together, but carrying things, I won't. But we're there for each other when we move. We're there for each other when we have needs, home improvement projects, little things that need to, why do we do that? So people will like us? No, because we're devoted to one another. We're a family. And that's how the early church lived. Why would we ever get away from that? I'm sure you appreciate it as much as I do. It's not something we do, it's something we are. It includes everything that happens in our interaction with one another. Everything from how are the kids to, hey, listen, can I pray for you? It's everything that happens. Fellowship exists. It just happens. It exists when we come together and continues to exist when we're apart. Do you think when fellowship is over that the fellowship is over? No. When quote-unquote fellowship time is over, that's just the time where we can be face-to-face. Fellowship continues throughout the week. It never ceases. We're connected to one another. This is what the early church was all about. It's what we're about here at Calvary Chapel and what the church desperately needs to be. If the world is going to see anything of value when they come to church, they've got to see that we're in God's word, hearing from him, and that we actually, imagine this, imagine this, we actually not only love each other, but like each other. It doesn't require large numbers. In fact, it exists when just two or three are united in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? You don't need a large church to have an intimate fellowship. 
And I'm so grateful for the fellowship. There's something else that's mentioned here, and it's that they shared with each other by breaking bread in communion. Now, this has many ramifications because, it, you know, here, here we are again, and, and, and the Supreme Court, thankfully, but unfortunately, five to four, far too close for my liking, um, ruled that the rules that California put in place saying that you couldn't gather in your homes, uh, I think they, they said it with three families. So, like, if you want to have a Bible study in your home, it was illegal. Imagine that. This is the United States of America. But the Supreme Court sided with freedom, but only by one vote, to protect our right to gather in our homes for worship or fellowship or communion. Thank God. Thank God. But, but still, I can tell you right now, if they said it was illegal, we'd do it anyway. Because at the end of the day, we answer to a much higher authority than the governor of California or even the Supreme Court. But you know what's great? Communion is it takes fellowship maybe a little deeper or takes the fellowship into an activity that is really, really important. Let me explain. It says, to the breaking of bread. Now that means communion, but it means a little bit more. Or something other than just communion. They shared with each other by breaking bread in communion. Now remember, communion is the word koinonia, it's fellowship. So what the, what, what the writer's saying here, what, what, what Luke is telling us, is that they were studying the word together, they were devoted to one another and to each other, and they had these wonderful relationships. But when they came together, there was an activity. Now this, as opposed to being the fellowship, this is the communion or the fellowship that those that love each other and are devoted to one another do. This is the action step. They broke bread. What does that mean? Well, clearly, they got together, they, they received communion together. They did. The communion as we know it. Communion teaches the world that we are a fellowship through the body and blood of Christ. And we do that once a month here, generally, once a month. And that is kind of a sermon that we preach. That, you know, we are the body of Christ, but the body and the blood of Christ is what establishes our fellowship with one another. So our relationship and our devotion is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. That's what, that's what binds us together, our relationship with Christ and our relationship in Christ. Communion also reminds us of something else, and I often highlight these different facets, uh, these different facets of communion when we receive communion. Communion reminds the church that we are one body through the body and blood of Christ. Not only are we a fellowship, but we're one body. So as the scriptures teach, we really, Christ is the head, we really are the body of Christ. So communion, it's kind of like we have that, that loaf of bread or that one matzah, we break it into pieces and we all receive of the same loaf. The idea is that we're sharing in the body of Christ, but one loaf or one matzah becomes many pieces and we all partake together, becoming one. So it stresses the, the co-union or communion in the body of Christ. But, let me go a step further. Because the Christians didn't just get together to receive communion, though they did. That was a highlight. That was an important aspect of their fellowship, their intimate fellowship. But breaking bread also refers to not just celebrating the Lord's Supper, but eating together as a family. And here's where my Italian heritage comes in. Because I remember as a kid, we were told, now I I don't want to offend anybody, but I grew up in an Italian neighborhood not far from here. And this was in the 60s and the 70s. 
And there were only two types of people that I was familiar with. There were Italians, which I thought everyone was Italian. And there were Medigans, which I didn't figure out until later means Americans. And I would hear these horrific stories about the Medigans. Do you know that when you go into a Medigan house and they're eating, they won't even let you sit at the table? Like, you know, you hear all these stories. Now, whether it was true or not, I don't know. I just heard these stories. They make you wait in the living room. Like, we hear these silly stories. And, and, I, and I was like, oh, my goodness, who are these people? But the idea that we were always told in our culture was if someone comes into your home, even if they ate already, they at least have to sit down at the table and have something to drink or maybe a little snack or a piece of bread. Because in our culture, and many cultures are like this, I'm just speaking for my culture, okay? And I'm not speaking against any other culture, so don't cancel me. <laughs> Although it's funny, I can make fun of Italians, nobody's going to get up in arms, you know? So here's what, here's what I realized. It was really, really important to sit down at the table. That's just something we had, you know, that was our thing. Dinner, we all sat together, and if someone was over or a neighbor came to eat with you, that's a very intimate time of fellowship. Now, this was true in the early church. They would get together, and they would share a meal. And even if we go out and share a meal at a restaurant, or you invite someone over to your house or your home, and you share a meal, that's a very, very intimate type of fellowship and communion. And I am glad to say that I've had the pleasure of being over many of your homes, and you really do get to know someone when you visit their home and sit down at their table, or you have them over your home and spend time with them. That's what the early church did. They spent time with one another. They ate together. They got to know one another. Now, why is that important? Because, you know, our, our, our society craves intimacy, especially right now. You know, it's been so depressing, hasn't it? Come on, let's be honest. Being told you can't get together with this person, you can't hug your best friend, you can't visit your mom. You, it's awful stuff. And I think one thing that's carried us through that is that breaking bread together. Now, I love a good meal. But having a good meal with someone you love, that brings it to the tops, the tippy tops. That is a great experience, isn't it? You might say, that doesn't sound very spiritual, Tim. That's one of the four things that the church was busy about. They were devoted to the fellowship, but they wanted to spend time together, eating together in an intimate setting, getting to know one another You cannot be the Lone Ranger Christian. That's not being a Christian. You, by definition, as a part of the body of Christ, are part of something so much bigger than yourself. As our world becomes darker and darker, you're going to need that more and more. Please don't isolate yourself, unless you're sick, and then come back in a week or so. Please don't isolate yourself. Right now, in these dark days... It's the only thing that's going to get us through. So that's a wonderful truth. And finally, prayer. Prayer. They prayed for each other. It says that they were, as it says here, devoted to, to prayer, dedicated to prayer. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you have to have a big old prayer meeting? I'm going to tell you something. When I first became a Christian, I would attend these prayer meetings And they were okay. It wasn't bad. It was great. But a lot of times they went way too long. People talked, like, said the same thing over and over again. And me being a very efficient person, I was like, this is not an efficient use of my time. 
because that's just the way I think. So when I would pray, I'd make a list and I would pray for people. And I know God wasn't interested in my many words. He was interested in my heart. But you know, over time, I realized that the most effective prayer is I'm having a conversation over dinner and someone says, you know, pray for me. I, I, I got to go to the doctor this week. You know what? Let's pray right now. And we pray. Or I get a text. So-and-so is going in for a test or a procedure. Keep them in prayer. You know what I do now? I don't, I don't have a prayer list. You know what I do? I stop what I'm doing, and I just pray for that person. Then I leave the email in my email box for like a week or so, or whenever, I, you know, as long as I need to. And every time I see it, because I check my email constantly, I just say a little prayer for that person. I know you do this for me. We do this for each other. What prayer is, is it's crying out to God on behalf of those that we're devoted to. You know, you don't have to want to pray for someone you love. You just do it. When someone you love is hurting or in need, no one has to say, you know, you really should pray more. You just pray. It's a response. Devotion is our response to God and what he's doing in and through our lives. So simple. We, we tend to complicate these things. Prayer is our communication with the Lord. And it includes personal devotion. It does. But it also includes corporate intercessory prayer. One really good thing that came out of the Zoom uh, application is that for a long time, people wanted to get together for prayer. But let's face it, during the week, to get together for 20 minutes or, or half an hour, drive, you know, 40 minutes to get together, and, and even especially during COVID, it was, it was challenging. So, you, you know, what we did, we said, hey, again, someone came up with this idea. Uh, why don't we have a prayer meeting for like a half hour, 45 minutes, just leave it open and people can log in and pray. And, you know, that happens all the time now. Actually, I think it happens every day during the week at around 1230. And those links are on our website. I know it happens on Sunday nights. I know that there are other get-togethers that take place online. But we have more prayer and praying for each other now, post-COVID, than we ever had before. That's a good thing. I would say that Zoom is that one platform where it actually is maybe a little bit better than face-to-face only because it allows you to get together more frequently. And let's face it, prayer is just as effective with you sitting in your home behind a screen with your eyes closed as it is you coming here and sitting in the coffee room. And I'm so grateful that we have been getting through this last year with each other through prayer, praying for each other through the many challenges and difficulties we face. And so prayer is the means by which we actually accomplish God's will on earth. And as a church fellowship, we are directed and sustained through prayer. Now, prayer can mean a lot of things. Let me briefly break it down. Prayer is a very wide topic. It includes praise, praising God, telling the truth about God. It includes worship, surrendering your heart to God, which we do whenever we gather together on Sundays and Wednesdays and other fellowships. It's also confession, which is crying out and asking God for forgiveness. It's thanksgiving, which is thanking God for his goodness, kind of like praise, being thankful. It's also, it also includes supplication, fancy words, supplication and intercession. Supplication is when you cry out to God for your needs, and intercession is when you cry out to God for someone else's needs. Prayer isn't more complicated than that. Don't make it more complicated than that. That's prayer. And that is the fourth of the four fundamentals of the early church, and the reason that the writer of the book of Acts mentions this is so that we'll know forever and ever 
that a church needs to have these four things more than any other. Now, there are other things we can be a part of, but never to the exclusion of these things, and never more important than these things. This is what it means to be a church, the bride of Christ. Now, the next thing we look at, because here's the problem, you know, you can flip on the light switch, you can flip on that switch, and if the light doesn't work, what does it tell you? There's no power. If we did these things in our own strength, they would accomplish nothing. What we need is to be devoted to God and respond to him, but we need God to empower us. If God the Holy Spirit doesn't empower us, then as important as these four things we talked about are, they're useless. You you with me? If you're doing them in your own strength, if you're just doing them for the sake of doing them, you're going through the motions, it's nothing. There has to be not only a sincere devotion, there needs to be a powerful dynamic in the church. And the dynamic in the church, the power of the Holy Spirit, is the result of our devotion, our true and sincere devotion to God. So as we're devoted to God, what's the result? God's power. Amen? Aren't you glad you turn on the light and the light comes on? You think the power is working. Now I do a little electrical work and sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. And I'll tell you what, it's a good feeling when the lights come on. Is that what's what's happening when we get together for Bible study and we're as the fellowship in communion and in prayer? Are we experiencing something more than just the activity? The devotion's great, but are we experiencing the dynamic? Here's what the dynamic looked like in the early church. Verse 43. Everyone, I want to highlight that word, everyone, was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's the dynamic that they experienced. The result of their devotion was this powerful experience of God. Now, I want us to look, I'm going to break it down, I want us to look at all these dynamics, and I want to keep asking the question, and I'm going to ask the question like, do we see this in the church today? Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about this church, because I believe we do. But I'm talking about the church, the body of Christ in America, the the church at large, in general, because we're still one body, we're one small body, part of a larger body. I'm deeply concerned about the state of the church in our world, and especially in our country. Because not only do I see a surprising lack of devotion to the things that are most important in general, I see a lack of dynamic. It almost seems to me like the lights aren't on. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to be harsh. But we have to take an honest look at the church as a whole and start to ask these questions. And maybe some of these things are true in our own lives. Or even within our fellowship, I'm willing to ask those questions. By asking them, I'm asking God to help me answer them so that I can understand better the things that need to change. So let's break it down. The first thing we see is everyone was filled with awe. Awe. Not awe. No, awe. That's something that really impresses you. You you come together for fellowship and you're like, 
Oh, awesome. That's like taking awe and putting some at the end of it. Awesome. Is that your experience of God? There was reverence in every one of their lives. Reverence for God. Now, reverence is a total respect for God. Oh, brothers and sisters, I'm sure you won't agree with me. There's a surprising lack of reverence for God in today's church. May we always have reverence for God in our hearts when we come together. One of the reasons I enjoy gathering in a traditional sanctuary is at least for me, again, just for me, it speaks the message, this is a house of worship. This isn't a barn, although it's, you can worship in a barn. You, you can worship in an office building. I'm not saying you can't. But there's something, at least for me, maybe I'm just fleshly or weird, but when I see the stained glass windows, when I, when I see a building that's dedicated as a sanctuary to worship, it sets me right. You know, I walk in here and I recognize, we're here to worship God. We're here to revere God. We're here to be in awe of God. Now, there was also power. There was the power of God in the lives of their leaders. Oh, it breaks my heart to say this, but I am so disenchanted and disillusioned by the leaders of the church in our nation. There are a few that have really inspired me over this last year, and I won't mention names, but there are many that have sorely disappointed me, apologizing for the color of their skin, siding with evil, ungodly agendas, supporting the government's closure of our churches. Not only is there no power, there's no guts. There's no spine. There's no backbone. Where's the awe? Where's the commitment to God that one would give their life for the right to worship him? I've become very disenchanted. I don't look to our leaders in the church anymore. Even within Calvary Chapel, you know, I looked, I looked to God. It's sad. But there was power. Notice it says in verse 43, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Can I say this? I don't know if it's theologically correct, but I don't think God works through cowards. Not this way. There has to be a boldness and a commitment to the work of God if you're going to experience great signs and wonders in and through your life and in your church. You have to be willing to stand up and acknowledge who God is and live for him, and if necessary, die for him. That's the Christianity that has survived the centuries, and that inspires me. There is a surprising lack of God's power in today's church, but the power of God in the lives of their leaders is one of the dynamics they experienced, and power is the ability to serve God according to his will, according to his will, not the government's will, not someone else's will, God's will. So reverence and power, these are the things we should see. In verse 44, oh, this is a wonderful one. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Our country is so divided by design, by design. The enemies of righteousness and reason have decided that it's easier to control us if they divide us and make us hate one another. Sadly, the church is a reflection of society. So within our culture today, we have people divided along all kinds of lines. Actually, literally giving themselves over to hate because we might think a little differently. Or we might vote differently. I, I, don't, I don't even know. It's so sad sometimes. But they were empowered to get along with each other. 
they actually got along with each other. We, we experience that here, and I'm so grateful for it. But you know what? In the church at large, let's be honest. Do we see that? Do we really see that? Unity. Unity is, is, is loving and serving each other despite our differences. And I can remember the biggest problem we had to deal with about 10, 12 years ago is that we had Giants fans and fans of other teams. And sometimes, and I'm not kidding, the conversations in the coffee room would get a little heated, and I'd have to pull somebody aside and say, guys, it's football. I know, I know, it's our other religion, but it's football. You guys are talking about each other like he's a heretic because he likes the Dallas Cowboys. Relax. Now I don't even watch the NFL or the MLB. I want no part of professional sports because of the nonsense. I remember when sports was sports. But that could divide us. All kinds of things. Politics, they can divide us. Here's what we learned about the early church. They were empowered to get along. That was the dynamic. They actually got along with each other. They didn't always agree, but they had unity. And there's a surprising lack of unity in today's church. Let's move on. Verse 45. This is a great one. It says, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. I can tell you, one of the greatest joys as a pastor, and especially this last year, is when the trustees come to me and they say, we received a little note in the offering box. Someone wrote a check and they said they want to bless this family anonymously. Brothers and sisters, this happens all the time. I know because while I don't know who does the giving, I usually write the check and hand it to the person. I've done this over and over and over again over the years, but especially this last year. Now, whether someone sold some stock or they sold some possessions to get the money, whatever, the important thing is that someone made a sacrifice because they were so devoted to someone else that they wanted to meet their needs. And these aren't small checks. What a joy it is to see it, to just as a bystander, to watch as the Holy Spirit empowers you to give to one another and meet each other's needs. And I have heard stories and I have heard testimonies of people that have sold cars and homes and things. And and then they say, you know what? I have some extra cash. I want to bless this family. I want to bless this person. Can I buy this person a new refrigerator? Can Can I give this person a car? Like over the years, I've seen this so many times. And the only thing I can, only conclusion I can come to is that it was the Holy Spirit in their lives motivating them to do what most people would consider to be very crazy. Imagine doing something with your life so unselfish. That's the dynamic we should see in the church. We should. Caring. Just caring. They were empowered to care for one another's needs. Caring is providing for the needs of those within our fellowship. No one here should ever go without. Can I say that? Oh, Pastor Tim, he doesn't want to work. Okay, okay. Maybe don't hand him a check. Maybe that would not be the good thing to do. Maybe that might not help the person. How about this? Help them find work. One of the things I've done over the years is someone will communicate to me, oh, Pastor Tim, I'm having a really hard time finding good people. I put that in my head. And I pray, Lord, put me together with the person that needs a job. It almost always happens. Actually, twice in the last month that's happened where I've recommended somebody, uh, at least talk to somebody because, hey, you need a job? He needs to hire somebody. So maybe it's not money. Maybe it's pointing someone in the right direction. Helping someone write their resume. You know what I mean? 
giving someone a suit you're not wearing anymore that might fit them or that they can get tailored. There are so many ways you can help one another. It doesn't have to be a check, but sometimes a check really comes in handy, doesn't it? I mean, think about over the last year how many people lost their jobs or significant portions of income or have become ill and couldn't pay their bills. Or, and you guys, let me tell you something. I'm, I'm bragging on you today, but I am so impressed. I never see anyone go without because you guys are so sensitive to one another's needs. But caring is providing for the needs of those within the fellowship. It comes out of that devotion. It's the power we experience when we devote ourselves to the fundamentals, the things that are most important. And sadly, there is a surprising lack of caring in today's church in general. If, if churches, churches should not have to bang the drum to get people to give. And you guys know we never have and we never will do that. But what does that say when a church has to say, remember guys, if you don't give, we're going to have to close our doors. It either says that they're not spending the money properly or people just aren't empowered to give. Maybe a little of both. But I know this. Caring and giving and meeting the needs of others was a part of the early church. And thank God it's a part of our experience at Calvary Chapel but it needs to be a part of our church today. There are so many hurting people in the world, and maybe, just maybe, they'll take us a little bit more seriously if occasionally we're willing to reach into our pocket and help someone. The world desperately needs to see that kind of love. Amen? Okay, well, let's move on here. You know, they, we've talked a little bit about this, but they were involved in each other's lives as well. Look at verse 46, first part. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, now I got to say, Wednesdays have been great. Some of you guys can make it out on Wednesdays, and we have a pretty good crowd. And we're in here. We, we started meeting in here during COVID because it was, you know, larger and people could spread out. Now we just like being in here. So I guess, you know, we used to be downstairs. Now we're upstairs. But many of you guys come out. You know, we're going through the studies in First uh, Peter. And uh, I've gotten a lot of encouraging feedback. And it's great to see you guys on Wednesdays and, of course, on Sundays. And, uh, you know, some Sundays are more, you know, than others in terms of numbers of people. But when we come together, we're coming together to be involved in each other's lives, okay? We, we, we actually like each other, as I've said. We spend time together. But notice, they got together every day. Imagine that. I know that's unrealistic. But there are some churches that have, like, a morning prayer or communion or a, a Bible study, like, every night. Uh, some, some of the larger churches probably have this, but imagine that every night, get, being able to get together, you know, maybe not everybody every night, but every day, it says here, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Somebody was there to get together for fellowship. And the truth is, if you look at all of our prayer meetings and fellowships, just about every day something's happening somewhere. And that's great. That's awesome. But the important thing to note is that they were involved in each other's lives. They didn't hold back. They were involved. Involved means spending time with those within our fellowship. We've talked a lot about this already, but that's what was happening. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad. To, it's sad to say, and I'm, I don't take any pleasure in saying that there's a surprising lack of involvement in today's church in our culture. You know, it's something you find out somebody's been going to the same church as you for 20 years and you've never met. I, I've heard stories like that, and I think to myself, my goodness, how does that happen? Either the church is way too big or you're not hanging around very long. Well, then we look at this. This is a good one, too. Because, listen, everybody wants to be happy. Does anyone get up in the morning and say, I really hope I'm miserable today? You know, today I'd really like to be unhappy. I'm asking God to answer that prayer. Nobody says that. And look what it says. 
they broke bread in their homes, which we've talked about, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They smiled a lot, I'm guessing. Their hearts and their lives were filled with sincere happiness. You know, there are far too many people that seem to, like, love on happiness to a point. It's like a drug. It's like a drug. They look at, I can be happy, I can be miserable. If I'm miserable, I get to complain about it. So I'm going to choose to be miserable and complain to everyone, and I'm going to pass on misery like a virus to everyone around me. I'm going to spread it around. You, brothers and sisters, are responsible for that choice. I'm responsible for that choice. Do you choose to be happy or unhappy? Now, you can't do anything about difficult circumstances. That happens in life. But how you respond to things, well, are you going through it alone? Are you bringing people into your circumstances? Are you building relationships? Relationships are what bring joy and gladness and happiness to the most difficult of circumstances. And what they were experiencing was sincere happiness. I hope that you'll experience happiness, but I can tell you how it happens. It's the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's the power of God. Sincere happiness is the result of caring for and being involved with those within our fellowship. So if you're unhappy, I'm going to guess that you're probably not as involved in others' lives as you should. I can tell you, if, if there were times this last year when I was unhappy, it was when I couldn't be with people that I loved. Family, friends, fellowship. So if you're unhappy, maybe make that course correction. And there is a surprising lack of sincere happiness in the church today and certainly in the world. That should change. Last two, verse 47, first part says that they were praising together. They were praising God together in worship. I like this. Uh, It says, praising God, praising God. That's what they were, that was the power that they experienced and they came together to praise God. I love our praise and worship services. I really do. I'm always sad, even, as much as I love the study of the word, when we get to the last song, I'm like, oh, is that it already? Can we do a couple more? You know, and then when we get the last song at the end, and, and then I think, and then when we have the worship night, an hour goes by, and I think, oh, is it over already? You know, we were so fortunate to have our Good Friday service, and we had wonderful devotions, but we also had those wonderful times of praise and worship. Many of you were there for that. That's what they were doing, praising God. Now, sadly, sadly, what passes as praise today is nothing more than cheap entertainment. The day we're up here entertaining you is the day we close the doors. We are here to praise God. If someone hits a bad chord, so what? It happens occasionally. We're all human. But God forbid we have such a polished presentation that when people come in, their first reaction is, well, this is better than a concert. I never want to go to a concert on Sunday mornings. I want to be in the presence of God, praising God with you. I'll leave that alone because I'll go way negative on that. (laughs) Praise and worship is the result of experiencing God's power within our fellowship. Are you experiencing God's power? Or is it just kind of a feel-good experience? Listen, I like concerts, okay? I'm a musician. I play concerts. There's nothing wrong with concerts. Just not in church, okay? Just not in church. Oh, there's a surprising lack of praise and worship in today's church, which is so sad. I don't know how. All right, maybe I shouldn't. I'm going to leave it alone. 
I'm going to move on. I'm going to use wisdom. Let's just leave it at that. Because now I'm just going to get critical. They were praising God together in worship. May we always do that. And finally, look at this. This is great. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. Well, of course they did. When it says all the people, it doesn't mean all the people that come to church. It's all the people. Well, why would they enjoy the favor of all the people? Why would people actually like church people? Well, do you remember what we've just read? Look at what they were doing. Look at their devotion to one another. Look at the power they were experiencing. People came into that and they said, I want in. I need a family. I want to have friends. I want to have a relationship. I want to know God. I want to learn about his word. Oh man, I love praising the Lord with these people. You know, part of the problem is when the world looks at the church, do they see anything worth being involved in? Oh great, they walk in the back door. Somebody's got the music way up too loud. And, and then, the, you know, not only that, they come in and they're, they're barely here and they're already being asked for money. And what, are you, what on earth are we doing in our culture today? The church should be the most attractive place on earth to a well-meaning, God-fearing person who wants to know God. Now, I admit, there are people who certainly won't want to walk into a church. That's between them and God. But those that are looking for God should find him in our midst. Amen? That's what he told us. He'd be gathered where two or three are gathered. That was the dynamic of the early church. It was so powerful that everyone, even if they didn't join the church, had a favorable view of the church. We've strayed far from God's blueprint for the church. There is a surprising lack of favor for today's church. In fact, the one consistent thing that came out over this last year is that the government, state and, lo- and, and federal, local governments couldn't wait to close our doors. Think about that. I lived through 9-11. Churches were filled the next day. When COVID took place, It was the first target of the enemy. Close the churches. And you know what most churches did? Closed. Sad. See, I think we needed to be open more than ever. And we're open. Finally, there's the direction of the church in this last verse. The last part of the last verse says this. And! And what? Well, with the devotion of the people... And the dynamic of the church, the power of the Spirit, this is what happened. Check it out. And the Lord, oh, the Lord did something. Yeah, he did. He, res- he responded to their devotion. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Don't talk to me about church growth. There's seminars and all kinds of consultants you can hire to grow your church. You want to waste good money? Do it. The most important thing we can do to grow the church is to be the church. When the world sees what we are and who we are and who God is in our midst, we're going to have to, you know, we're over the fire code. You, you, you can't come in. We can't let any more people in. The Lord was adding to the church daily such that we're being saved. People were so affected by the testimony of the early church that they were pouring in the back door. What's the direction of the church? We've talked about the devotion and the dynamic of the church. The direction of the church is God's response to their devotion. That's what God does when we do what he's called us to do. The Lord did the work. Can I hear an amen? The Lord did the work and he did it through them because they first allowed him to do the work in them. 
We allow God to do the work in us, and then he does the work through us. The Lord could trust a church like this, a church that was devoted to love others dynamically. The Lord could safely add to their numbers without the fear of diluting their spiritual strength. Think about this. Think about this. If numbers of people came in the door, what would happen to the spiritual strength of the church? They were so strong that when numbers came in, the spiritual strength of the church didn't wane. God desires to work in our fellowship and to add numbers to our church each and every day. But as a church, we must grow deep if we are to safely grow any larger than we already are. Brothers and sisters, that's the direction of the church. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this wonderful blueprint that you've given us in your word. May we be faithful to your call May we be devoted to one another, devoted to your word, devoted to spending time together, giving to one another, meeting one another's needs, praying for one another. And may we experience the power of God, the Holy Spirit in our midst, that we might be a transformative force in our world, that the world might see our love for you and praise our Father in heaven. O Lord, Heavenly Father, may the direction of this church and the church in America be that we don't have to do anything more than be who you've called us to be, that we might see the power, your power, working in our midst. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.